Hey everyone, here with another bonus episode, and I know the pacing and the timing of these is a little dense right now. This is like four episodes in two weeks, but I did want to talk to these two before the November election happened, so today I talked to two guests. The first is Brooke Adams of People's Action, who was also involved in the Bernie 2020 campaign. She was the director, I believe, of Iowa, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. And the first voice you'll hear is Tobita, Tobita or Toby Chow of Justice is Global, which is a project of People's Action. We talk about how these two got involved in politics and activism and organizing earlier in life after being, to various degrees, less political or even apolitical when they were younger. Um, we take a look inside the Bernie campaign um, in March when COVID was hitting. We talk about why did Asian and Latino voters vote in, in such overwhelming numbers for, for, for Bernie um, this spring. We talk about Toby's project, uh, Justice is Global, which is pushing for more internationalism within progressive circles, but also trying to challenge the sort of anti-China campaigning that is um, found among both Democrats and Republicans. And finally, uh, looking forward, we talk about on the off chance, uh, we're not making any predictions, I don't want any bad, any bad karma, on the off chance that Biden and Harris do win, how could progressives who supported Sanders and Warren push for their voice to be heard within a Biden presidency? There's a lot of links to different things we talked about in the show notes, such as what is deep canvassing or what are Toby's thoughts on the U.S.-China trade war. So uh, look at the show notes if you're interested in that stuff. Brooke also wanted me to pass on a note that on October 27th, so only a few days after this episode is released, there will be a deep canvassing event with AOC, with Bernie and several others. So look for that in the show notes as well. One final thing is the way we recorded this episode kind of made the audio sound a little weird at some points. I try to fix it as much as possible, and I do think it sounds mostly fine, but I just wanted to explain why at some points it might sound a little bit unnatural. Okay, so we're time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com, at TTSGpod on Twitter, as always. Um, so thanks for listening, and uh, on to the show. Time. So I am originally from Canada. Uh, I was born in Vancouver, uh, but also uh, lived for eight years in rural uh, Alberta, middle of forest, just east of the Rockies, um, and uh, moved to Chicago. This was back in 2005 uh, for grad school. At the time, I thought I was going to become a philosophy professor. and. Um, uh, ran into community organizing while I was there, kind of by accident. I went to this uh, Martin Luther King Day event. I had no idea what I was getting into. It turned out to be uh, a public meeting organized by a community organization uh, called Soul on the south side of Chicago. And I uh, was just like really blown away uh, by what I saw there. There's like a, uh, uh, a great vision of uh, social racial justice um, and they also brought like members of the Chicago City Council to make commitments on a public transit proposal uh, for the south side of Chicago. And um, I'd been to like some protests before, um, like with way more people than were at this meeting. This, this public meeting was like 350 people. And I was like, well, how did they get the Chicago City Council to come and make commitments to them? I've never seen this before. Um, so that was my introduction to organizing yeah. and uh, politics uh, in in the US. Was that something you had not thought about doing until then? Since my undergrad had sort of an on again, off again relationship with activism, um, got involved in some student led activism back in Vancouver. 
uh, when I was going to university there. Um, and it never really felt quite right for me. Um, I always wondered, like, going to these protests and so on, like, what, what was the point of this? Did we actually accomplish anything? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like walking in a circle, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are we just doing <laughs> this to, like, make ourselves feel better? Um, and, and I was, like, you know, having trouble, like, seeing myself in, in, in sort of the, this, like, student-led activist work. Um, so it was, it wasn't until, uh, I came to Chicago and, uh, ended up at this, uh, uh, community organizing event, um, on the South side that, uh, yeah. I felt like, oh, I actually want to invest in this. Brooke, what about you? Did you meet Toby in Chicago? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, some of my first organizing experiences were with Toby. Um, but yeah, my story is not too dissimilar. I definitely was not thinking I would ever go into politics. I actually majored in math. Um, when I was in Chicago at school, um, grew up in Seattle in a family of uh, my mom and her her parents moved here from Taiwan shortly before I was born. And I think for me, I grew up in a pretty apolitical family, wasn't thinking a whole lot about organizing or activism even, even though I grew up in kind of what people imagine is a liberal haven. Um, yeah. And then when I was in Chicago, I got exposed to People's Action, the People's Lobby, was at some of those same protests, actually, that Toby just referenced Um, and for me, it was actually around the free college fight that was emerging in Illinois at the time that I started taking more and more leadership with the organization. And I think the thing that really hooked me was that people's action and in a lot of ways, the Sanders campaign, a lot of the organizing that's emerged in the past few years do a really good job framing the problems that we experience in terms of actual evil actors at play in a way that totally transforms like how we see our own experiences. And for me, how I saw my own experiences with my family, growing up with immigrants, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And then so, got, got involved with the Bernie campaign after that, unsurprisingly. Yeah. So now currently you're with this group called People's Action. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And what's that relationship? To, and Toby, your, your primary job is, is it People's Action or is it Justice is Global? Or what is the relationship between those two? Yeah, Justice is Global is a project of people's action so i'm like officially staff at people's action okay um but my position is to run this project so i, I do want to talk about the bernie campaign of course but i don't want to gloss over really quickly so we have this is such a stereotype on this podcast everyone is from seattle on this podcast or is somehow related to seattle and toby's honorary you're in just across the border you're from <laughs> vancouver right bc yeah right? we think of seattle as honorary vancouver but that's <laughs> so but i mean Brooke, you mentioned that you were you grew up in a very sort of apolitical family so what, what, but there must have been some sort of spark, right? That, that led you to kind of actually jibe with these um, events that you started attending in Chicago. Like, what, what do you think was it that kind of, like, I, I, if you could say anything about your family that you find perhaps is interesting, you said your, your, your mom grew up in Taiwan and then came to the U.S. in Seattle before, before you were born, right? I think for me, a lot of my experience here was grounded in the fact that my family did move here looking for more opportunity in the States, right? My mom, um, especially, she came here for school first and foremost, and then met my dad. They moved to Seattle. And I think for me, I was taught from a very young age, like this is a place that you look for opportunity and you got to work hard, you know, play it by the rules. And eventually just maybe our family will make it. Uh, That was a big part of my upbringing. And I think you know, politics was never part of that equation, at least not in terms of how we talked about um, our life here in the States. Um, of course, you could argue that everything was political, right, that we were experiencing, but at least that's not what we talked about. It was, you know, go to school, get a good education, um, work really hard and support each other in the process. 
Um, and honestly, actually, I think the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2015 and 2016 really did spark quite a lot of realization for me um, in terms of... So. How old are you at that time, by the way? I was, oh gosh, I must have been, was maybe 19, 20, something like that. Yeah. Yes, I think that's right. <laughs> so just, just able to vote. Yes, yes. Yep. First presidential election I voted in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what, what did it spark for you? Yeah, I mean, part of the context is that my whole family from Taiwan actually voted for Bush twice. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a decision that I would say was deeply motivated by their political leanings or a real methodology around, you know, their worldview. Um, it was more that they were really concerned about China having moved here from Taiwan. Uh, okay. And the Bernie 16 campaign, like, I was obviously exposed to a whole different worldview of thinking because I was in college, no longer in Seattle, you know, meeting new people, um, engaging with new organizations. But I also watched my entire family, you know, radically shift in how they were thinking about their own experience here in the country. Um, they all voted mm. for Bernie during the primary oh, wow. in 16 and also, um, yes, were firm supporters of him and his campaign all the way through and watching my family move in that way while I was also, you know, encountering um, his messaging around free college, you know, Medicare for all, et cetera, with new eyes in a different place um, really got me committed to organizing in the movement. So one thing <coughs> I think, so we started this podcast back in April and it was a weird time to start because obviously COVID had just begun. And I think when we started talking about doing a podcast, um, there was talk among the other hosts, Jay and Tammy about, you know, we think that there's um, a niche for sort of this. Well, I guess there was an assumption that Bernie might win and Bernie was going to win. Or at least like the, we could talk about the campaign for a while, but then everything just went really weird, right? Really quickly. We had Super Tuesday, I think on March 5th. And then by March 15th, I think everything had been shut down and there was like zero. We had that weird debate, the one debate between between Biden and, and Bernie, right? Uh, so it was a really weird month. I'm, I'm just kind of curious now that we have some time to perhaps catch our breath. What was it like, I guess, for both of you going through March? Um it must have been, I mean, especially for someone attached to the campaign, it must have been just chaos, right? March was a wild month. We, I actually moved from Iowa to North Carolina, then to Pennsylvania with the campaign. And to start in Iowa, um, that, that's where all of the, the collapse began in my mind um, with the results from the caucuses and then just moving quickly from state to state. And it was interesting because I think in, in both of the states, North Carolina and Pennsylvania, there was just tons and tons of momentum on the ground. Um, in North Carolina, we had office openings where we literally had to convert them into rallies because people couldn't fit inside of the offices. And it was just that post early state sentiment where everyone's been waiting for you and waiting to get plugged in, you know, and really, really eager to push him over the finish line. And in Pennsylvania in March, actually, we scheduled office openings beginning of the month with sort of a peripheral awareness that COVID was happening, but no idea how severe it was going to get. And almost overnight, we got thousands of people RSVP'd to those office openings. Like we're talking about 600 plus in some areas. And I think it was 48 hours before the office openings when COVID started to, I don't know if you all remember, there was like a 24 hour period where it went from like maybe this should be a concern to like full out, you know, wide scale crisis in most people's minds. In my mind, it was when it was when the NBA shut down. But I don't, that's just because I like basketball. I don't know if it's what was what was the big sort of milestone for you? 
Do you do is there <clears throat> an event or like it was a South by Southwest? Or... I mean, honestly, it was probably these office openings because we had to very quickly make decisions as a campaign about what our policy was going to be. And we ended up sending all of our staff home and not having the office openings and converting to digital events instead. Uh, but it was so fast, you know, it was like it was quite literally like 24 hours where we had to make all of those decisions. And at that point, though, you Super Tuesday has already happened. The sort of crazy consolidation behind Biden had already happened. Um, I don't know if you're how much you want to talk about it, like, but what was the mood like within the campaign, um, like kind of in, in that brief window between Super Tuesday and going digital, let's say? It was interesting because we had to find completely new ways to organize on top of there being a lot of uncertainty around COVID, around the election, around the consolidation of the establishment and what that would mean for us. And the biggest thing that I remember is just being a part of a team that was, you know, forced to maneuver through situations where every single day there were different things in the news, different updates about COVID, um, about whether or not it was safe to meet in person, et cetera. And it was, uh, you know, it, it was really great to be surrounded by a good team. We started doing things that, frankly, we had never done as a campaign, big national live streams, as you all remember, uh, big yeah. teach-ins around issue-based related themes uh, surrounding public health and the Bernie campaign. And I do think there were a lot of really creative ways of engaging the public around Bernie's agenda, but also the long-term agenda of the movement more broadly, because um, Bernie was seen as a credible source of information during that time when everything was so uncertain. Um, so that's the thing that I remember most is just like us really pushing to think about how we could engage people that were part of his base in a time where everything felt so uncertain so that we could actually move people towards seeing his solutions as the solutions to the crisis more broadly. Yeah. But then, well, so before we go, I mean, Toby, what was it like for you? What, what was your position at the time? Were you officially, uh, you were just doing mostly justice as global stuff. You weren't officially with the campaign in any, in any sense, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, actually, I think pretty much my last social outing before the lockdowns was, Brooke, do you remember that bar in Philly? Uh, <laughs> you guys we, are in Philly? Yeah, I was on, I was doing this road trip, like uh, this like multi-stage road trip that started in Philly not road trip, I was like flying, whatever, but it started in Philly <laughs> and then went to DC and then I, 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 was, I ended up in like Atlanta. Um, and that was the week that everything, <laughs> everything was going south in the country uh, that happened in the middle of this trip. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we met up at uh, this uh, 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 statewide meeting of Pennsylvania Stands Up, um, which is another People's Action uh, member organization. And uh, I think Brooke was there with like Zephyr Teachout was uh, a Bernie surrogate at this event. And then we went to this bar after. And then, um, oh, and then I shared this like horrifying Tucker Carlson segment where he was ranting about China and yeah. the coronavirus. And I think that freaked Brooke out. Um, I very distinctly remember this because we watched it together and Toby was like, isn't it, isn't it wild that every other person on the street right now is talking about COVID? And I was like, huh, interesting. I wonder if this is going <laughs> to turn into a big thing. <laughs> so did you feel like once things went digital, the campaign, it was just going to be kind of too tough to to sort of like change the the outcome? Because, you know, people were just like, they couldn't move anywhere. They, we weren't going to have in-person events. And also just like people's priorities were no longer like following the primaries more about like, figuring out whether or not they're gonna get COVID, right? And things like that. I mean, it's it's tough for me because I'm, you know, I'm an org organizer at heart. I'm not a political staffer, comm staffer. 
So my experience with the campaign was first and foremost with the people that we were organizing. And Bernie's base is very loyal. Bernie's base is also not necessarily people who are just connected with him via the news or Twitter. It's people who've been organized by their own friends and family. Um, You know, I've seen it with my own family. It was like my cousin and brother who first brought him to the dinner table. And I think that despite the fact that things were looking worse, you could argue in mainstream media, like energy was still there. Excitement was still there. And most people were still asking, like, what do we do? Right. Like, what is the next step? And the campaign was pretty unique in that we pivoted to actually organizing around some COVID-related issues. Like there were petitions that were pushed out about Amazon. Um, Bernie was speaking to his agenda and how it related to COVID. So I do think, you know, unlike other presidential campaigns that end, it did feel like there was a pivot that was about how do we engage people in the moment that we're in that didn't feel deflating. It felt very much like we were trying to creatively tackle what people were going through and meet them where they're at. Um, and really move move towards whatever was going to happen during the summer in a way that felt collective, despite all of us being on Zoom screens at that point. So one thing that I think I missed this summer, you know, as, with the craziness of the summer, there was a lot of kind of research coming out to talk about like who who was the Bernie voter, right? And kind of breaking it down demographically. And I think and a lot of this stuff was already kind of known at the time, but um, um, I think we, I guess we have more final numbers, let's say. So, for instance, there was one report I kind of found just kind of messing around on the Internet. There was a report from UCLA that combined sort of their Asian American and also their Latino American kind of research centers coming up with the result that, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go through all the details. But basically, they said uh, there was a lot of strong Latino support for Sanders in the Democratic primary, Asian American, quote, Asian Americans represent a core block of voters for Senator Sanders. Within the report, there's lots of numbers that basically show that in a lot of these states, not all of them, but a lot of them in the precincts where there were strong Latino and Asian sort of like uh, presence, those groups all went to Sanders, not necessarily majority in all cases, but probably a plurality, right? Number one. Uh, So this was true in Iowa, Nevada, Massachusetts, Texas, California, Washington, but not necessarily true in Virginia and North Carolina. So I, th- I think that's interesting because this was something, you know, the, the Latino story, I think, was kind of well-documented, right? Like Chuck Roche is on TV all the time. So I think it was hard to miss. And obviously, they just make up like a huge, big demographic, a bigger demographic than Asian Americans. Uh, but I think like it became sort of something that kind of slipped under the radar in the sense that I think five years ago, if you told me there's this guy, Bernie Sanders, who's going to run for president twice, he's going to be like, a better Ralph Nader and he's actually going to be mainstream and going to be like the front runner and it's going to, he might actually like come close to winning. I wouldn't necessarily assume that Asian Americans would have gone for him, right? I would have assumed they might have. I don't know what I would have assumed, but that is not a natural assumption for me. So I guess I'm wondering if you all have any thoughts on, you know, both for Latino and Asian American or just, I think perhaps immigrant, immigrant groups in particular. Um, what do you think, what did you see in terms of why he was appealing to those groups? There's, I mean, it's, it's really quite incredible. I will just say the overwhelming support. My, my firsthand experience of this is Iowa because I was field director for the campaign there. And our strategy for organizing constituents, constituent groups was actually around the satellite caucuses, which were a new thing that were happening in Iowa. There were these tiny little satellite caucuses all across the state. Um, that were actually created as a response to the fact that the caucuses were inaccessible. 
Um, so they happened throughout the day, you know, different times so that shift workers were able to go caucus. Um, you can make lots of arguments about whether or not the satellite caucuses were truly accessible. In a lot of ways, they absolutely were not. But that being said, it gave us an opportunity to really organize people to come out with their community um, to caucuses that were happening, you know, at local mosques, um, you know, at local community colleges. Um, we actually had an API organizer on the campaign who did a lot of constituency organizing at his community college and submitted for a satellite caucus and was able to kind of like take ownership of turning out his own friends and family to that caucus that he submitted um, to be hosting at his school. And I think like this kind of just in my mind gives a good picture and tells a good story about the way that constituency organizing happened on the campaign. Because Bernie, you know, from the very beginning made it very clear that he wasn't going to, you know, give the same old talking point that he had all the answers and was the politician who was the smartest in the room and would figure it out for us. He would always say over and over again, I'm asking you for more than just your vote, right? This is about you stepping up and organizing your own friends and family. It's about you becoming ambassadors of the campaign. And to me, that was a huge part of the shift between 2016 and 2020, is that we got to a place where people were really acting as ambassadors to the campaign. And we always know that young people love Bernie Sanders, right? Young people in particular really value his agenda. Yeah, why do you think that is? I mean, I can guess, but you know, <laughs> you're the expert. Yeah, I mean, young people have gone through um, quite a few crises in our lifetimes, I would say. And a lot of our childhood is shaped by crisis. It's the economic crisis. It's, you know, now climate change. And I think Bernie is someone who really just levels with people in terms of the responsibility that we have to take in fighting those crises. And again, invites you into the picture. So it's not just condescending. We need to do X, Y, Z. Like you need to listen to me. I have the answers. It's we got to fix this together. This is a team effort. Um, and also we have a vision for how things could be that is different from experiencing crisis after crisis after crisis. And I think that that is the thing for me as a young person that's most compelling is it's not just like policy paper after policy paper. It's an actual blueprint for how we can take initiative in making these things real. Um, so I think, yeah, that that is what I would say is the appeal for young people for constituency organizing. It was just so many young people of color were bringing their friends and family to events and these are people who've never voted. These are people who felt like the caucus process was extremely inaccessible. Most people are like, what in the world is a caucus, right? <laughs> like, I'll vote in the primary, but what's a caucus? Um, right. And I think just this, this model of really training people to be ambassadors for the campaign from an organizing standpoint, like that, that is huge for being able to actually reach constituencies that you can't reach just from going on TV or the radio or whatnot. I mean, do you have a sense, I mean, especially because, you know, break your organizing, do you have a sense just from conversations with friends and family or just like people, voters on the ground? Is there something about the immigrant experience or the Asian experience that Bernie resonates with in a way that, uh, you know, like the rest of the, I mean, I guess Biden was kind of second place in a lot of these results. But, you know, beyond that, it doesn't seem like for anyone else really kind of made a strong showing. Um, and this is something, yeah, I've, I've kind of like, I don't know, anecdotally, so nothing scientifically noted, like, yeah, it does seem like there is a strong sort of, um, sort of correlation, let's say, between young Asian Americans and, and their support for Bernie. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think the, the things I remember hearing the most 
I will just say education is an issue that comes up a lot in conversation with my family in particular. Um, you know, a lot of them came to this country because they were able to get into a college or a grad program, right, and wanted to be able to come to the United States. And sometimes when you start talking with people about the economy, right, it's not going to actually open up as productive of a conversation. It'll just turn into an argument. Um, Whereas with my family, I think everyone can resonate if they have kids with free college. Everyone's afraid of going into debt and everyone recognizes that education is critical for opportunity here. And I think just to take that one step further, I do think Bernie's whole platform was about opportunity and how we can really create a country where people have the opportunity to thrive. And that's something that for me in my experience growing up in a family of immigrants um, really resonates with people. Like what, what my family is looking for is opportunity here, you know? And I think that's true for a lot of people in this country. And it was a vision for how, or it is a vision for how people can really thrive here. I mean, Brooke, you mentioned that for your, for your family, a strong priority is sort of anti-China, anti-PRC. Uh, I mean, maybe that's a military fear, let's say, but I don't know if my, my parents, I could say they don't, I think they are, you know, the irony is like if you grow up in Taiwan, you benefit from a very socialized education system, socialized healthcare. Uh, like my parents, like, I mean, a lot of people in my parents' generation take advantage of Taiwan's very good universal healthcare program, for instance. And at the same time, they'll like, you know, say we're against communism and socialism. And, um, but, but at the same time, you ask them about like universal healthcare, and it's like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, I wonder. I wonder if there's like what's what's going on there in terms of. Do you feel like a lot of Asian Americans or the Asian voters are, um, let's say, they are turned off by Bernie calling himself a socialist or a democratic socialist, but then when you talk about very practical things like universal healthcare, you said education, it's those sort of concrete policies that might make a breakthrough. I'm trying to recall. I don't actually think I've personally had that many interactions with people where people bring up the socialist thing as their fear or concern anymore. Five years ago, I probably would have said something different, but I've just experienced that way less. Like it's hard for me to actually even remember a conversation um, with an AAPI voter this cycle. Um, But, you know, as you just said, uh, hesitate to make blanket statements. That probably applies for some folks. I do think like the campaign was really centered around the issues though. Um, That was where... Bernie was speaking from. So that's really what people associated with him. So it didn't really, again, it didn't really come up a whole lot in conversation. Yeah, I feel like Bernie was not that vulnerable to the red baiting. This um, time. Yeah, this time. Why, why do you think that is? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think, well, okay. So this is totally speculative, but I feel like um, he's like really closely identified with sort of blue collar, working class, white people support. And like that, that like, if that's sort of core to the public identity of mm-hmm. of Bernie Sanders as a candidate, then like the 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 like red baiting it is it's really hard to make that stick. I feel like, and that's based on your sort of like your interactions in Chicago or just around the country. Yeah, and just sort of observing the public discourse of of like you know it's sort of being on the left pre Bernie. You you expect the socialist label to be a huge liability. Yeah, and and. I just feel like it wasn't. Um, yeah. That's that's not what we saw play out. So looking forward then, you know, the campaign uh, wraps it up in, in the middle of the summer. But I think that there were a lot of um, things to be hopeful for about, hopeful about. And obviously you all are continuing your work. 
Um, you transitioned from the Bernie campaign to People's Action, Burke. Um, and there were a lot of victories this summer for, you know, not for the president, but, you know, like for Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman and the sort of um, famous races. Do you feel like overall, like there's reasons for, how, what are the reasons for optimism going forward for, um, let's say, someone who is supportive of the Bernie campaign and would hope for like f- future candidates like Bernie to kind of emerge and be successful in the U.S.? Yeah, I will give my very organizery answer to this because um, it's just going to be the context that I'm coming from. I do think the left has gotten way, way better at pushing our ideas into one could call it the battle of ideas, right? Like things like Medicare for all, free college, um, Green New Deal are not just terms that people hear and are like, what's that? Everyone knows what those things are now. And it's actually been forced into the public debate. What we have struggled with is actually having the political muscle to make those things real, however. And I feel like we're just starting to get to a place where it's not just campaigns. It's actually a whole political organization of the left that is really learning how to build mass scaled muscle in terms of organized people, in terms of organized money. Right. When you think of these people who won over the summer, Cori Bush, Jamal Bowman, um, they were all backed by organizations that aren't necessarily trying to replicate what a party is, but building real community power so that they can stay in relationship with candidates so that the next time around when we have someone who's running for federal office, maybe running for president, we can actually have the political muscle so that our endorsements can be the thing that tips the scales so that our organizations can actually have the lasting power uh, between cycles. So I do think there's just a lot of work that's been done by organizations like People's Action, Working Families Party, um, all of our member organizations, Reclaim Philly, Pennsylvania Stands Up, um, you know, CPD Action, et cetera. Um, that feels like it's, you know, building more scale than we've ever seen. So that's all to say, like, we've done a great job pushing our ideas into into the the national landscape. And now it's about really getting to the place where we can win on each of those ideas. I mean, Toby, Toby what, do you, to, what do you think in terms of, do you feel like the progressive movement has only gotten stronger in your experience over the course of this cycle or the last few years you've been involved? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, no question. What have you all, what have you all been doing uh, in, in the lead up to, the, to November, I guess is the question. Like, what, what's a Bernie's person supposed to do at this point? So we've been running a pretty massive deep canvas program at People's Action that is focused on electing Biden. Uh, We have not endorsed Biden because he does not agree with us on most issues and does not support our long-term agenda, but we do recognize that there's a huge opportunity right now to engage voters around our worldview on race, class, gender, et cetera, and actually move them towards supporting our long-term agenda. And frankly, like, there's just so much more space for us to organize and push for the victories that we need under a Biden administration for the next four years. Um, so the Deep Canvas is the program that we're using to do this. Um, we've, with People's Action, we've made about 25 million voter contact attempts. So it's a pretty like large-scaled program that replicates a lot of the organizing tactics that the Bernie campaign founded, uh, but applies it to really moving people's worldview on race and class. And frankly, the Biden campaign is like not really a credible messenger with a lot of the people that we want to organize. Um, so we see ourselves as positioned to do that. And then after November 3rd, pivot as quickly as we can to really pushing for our agenda under a Biden administration. Knock on wood. We don't want to, this is, this is going to come out before the election. So we don't. We've we all be been blamed. doing, we've all been doing like scenario planning. It's like, what are you going to do if Biden wins? And there's, 
a Democratic majority? What are you going to do if Biden wins? But there's a Republican majority in the Senate. What are you going to do if Trump wins? It's like, oh, I don't want to. <laughs> do we have to do this exercise? Being an organizer right now is a funny experience because it's just like a constant like algorithm of scenario planning because there's so much that could happen in the next couple of months, you know? Because the president, but also like the exec or the um, the legislative branches and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Or even just like different things that could happen in November. Like what? what oh, else? like what is what is the like what are the struggles we're going to have to get into? Like election day, the day after election day, mm. the weekend, the week after, right. the week after right. that. Like who knows? Like who knows how how long it's going to take to resolve that, and what do we need to do in order to make sure that um, yeah. there's just not a blatant theft yeah. of the election yeah. i think in my darker days i do wonder like i get so upset with the democrats sometimes i just wonder like i don't think like maybe just let's just let trump win again <laughs> and and just have um just like discredit the democratic party once and for all now i will say that is like a you know like a dark scenario in my head uh and i am more you know i'm obviously convinced that it's probably better that he not win why do you why do you think that there is an opportunity though within the Biden campaign to have Bernie um, or to have this sort of like progressive issues voiced because that's kind of the the impression I got watching the primaries again I'm just an outsider watching television is that of all the candidates on stage like Biden was the least open and sympathetic to like universal social welfare programs so um, yeah what, what do you all think strategy wise there to me the opportunity is not really about Biden whatsoever <laughs> it's more mm -hmm. that I do think there's a sort of existential battle right now within within the left to the center of what the future of the Democratic Party looks like. You have, on the one hand, a vision for organizing more wealthy, suburban, you know, trending more educated voters. Um, I, I would associate that more with centrist Democrats, right? And then we have just a base that stretches across, you know, people of color, uh, rural white voters who are all experiencing COVID in a way that is kind of unifying across different populations of people. All of a sudden, there's this crisis that's right in front of people that affects everyone in some way. And I do think we're in a moment where we have the opportunity to actually contest for that vision of what the future block, right, that defines the left will look like. Um, and it's critical. Like, we cannot let that first vision um, ultimately, ultimately be how we organize because we're not going to win. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be a big struggle, I think, over, um, so assuming the Biden victory. So yeah, knock on wood again. Um, there's going to be a big struggle around uh, the story that gets told about how he won. Uh, so the Democratic Party establishment is going to push for this story that it was, um, you know, these, these moderate, um, perhaps even anti-Trump Republican voters uh, in the suburbs um, in the relatively affluent, mostly white suburbs. Uh, and it's going to be important for us to say, like, no, it was uh, like the multiracial working class led block. Um, and so that, that's going to be like sort of this initial struggle, like as soon as this election gets resolved. Um, and then going along with that is like, what is the agenda that can sort of represent the will of, of the, the Democratic voting bloc based on either of these understandings? Um, yeah. Yeah. What is that conversation like when you're like, we're not going to endorse Biden, <laughs> but we're going to help try to try to try to get him to win? Is that is it awkward or is it sort of like, you know, just kind of clear minded, like we know what our goals are and we know the kind of fine line we have to walk here? 
I mean, look, I don't think many of us organizers are too happy with um, the primary results necessarily, but I do think it, it, it's pretty, it's been pretty crystal clear that Trump is extremely antagonistic to everything we stand for. Um, especially during the mass uprising this this summer, it just felt like a blatant reminder every single day of just how much he's hurt all of our communities. Um, so is it exactly the scenario that any of us would have wanted? No, absolutely not. But I do think it's been pretty clear that, you know, we still have to keep working and keep fighting for what we need to win. Yeah, yeah I think people are in different places, even within our own organization on that question. But it's been like remarkably drama free. Um, I would say like the idea that we, we need to do what we can to help get Biden elected, um, knowing that he's not our ideal candidate and that the job immediately after the victory is to yeah. target him and pressure him. <laughs> it's sort of like uh, as World War II is winding down, the nationalists and the communists were getting ready for the civil war that was about to happen. But first they needed to win World War II first. <laughs> I, I, I love this analogy. Yeah, no, that's that's the perfect analogy. That's going to offend, that's gonna offend everyone. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were getting ready for like two years. And then once, once, once Japan declared defeat, then they just went at it. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're just waiting for it. Okay, uh, uh, enough history nerdy nerdiness. Uh, why don't we pivot to the question, which is obviously still related, but something that's much more um, uh, uh, sort of uh, a Toby specialty, which is, I know, Toby, you've written a lot um, about this, and I know this is kind of central to the campaign with Justice is Global, is that for the Democrats in particular, right, we know the GOP is kind of fear-mongering and xenophobic, but for the Democrats in particular, they need to um, kind of stop doing the xenophobia stuff, stop doing the red-baiting, or not the red, well, red-baiting part of it and, like, blaming China for COVID and all that. Um, why don't, I mean, why don't you tell us, I think Justice is Global... What is this organization? I think your your efforts in, in trying to deal with sort of the Democrats kind of incapacity to centrist Democrats, let's say, incapacity to think about, um, you know, global issues is something you've been thinking about before COVID. I do remember in 2016 when Bernie kind of burst onto the scene having a lot of conversation with just, you know, like random Facebook friends about like, well, it seems like we're kind of have this forced choice between being pro-globalization and pro like free markets and capitalism or being anti-globalization, but therefore like anti-immigrants and kind of anti like cosmopolitan worldview, right? And that's like a forced choice that's hard to negotiate. So I think there's a need for an organization like yours to kind of try to cut through that false choice. But I don't know, do you want to tell us like, how did you begin thinking about Justice is Global and what's the history of it? So I and uh, some, uh, you know, close comrades started to think about, well, what is our analysis of the system that we're up against? Um, a big conversation partner there was Jake Werner, who, you know, Andy. Shout out to Jake. Shout out to Jake. Um, and became pretty clear that um, that we're in a system of neoliberal capitalism, it operates globally, and the the global nature of it is essential to how the system works and continues to function. So that um, at some point, uh, we need to address it at the global level, or we're not actually going to win the transformational change that we we want to see even in, within the U.S. Um, because the the fate of U.S. society and U.S. economy is bound up in this global system. You know, around that same time, uh, it, this, we were seeing these major strikes 
um, in the global south and, and particularly in Asia. So like there was like a huge tens of thousands of people strike in in well more than one uh, in China, in Vietnam, Cambodia, like South Africa. There was like a lot a lot of um, um, labor like these big labor actions in in the global south and um, from that point we started to think about like what is it going to look like to take on the system to take on corporate power um, transnationally which is how corporate power operates um, first step towards that was to try to figure out how to integrate more of this global perspective into uh, community organizing at the local level right, so at the time I was uh, uh, just involved in community organizing within within Chicago, um, and it's not obvious how you can bring sort of any kind of international sp- perspective into uh, a locally based community organization. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of trial and error there, um, and uh, what that led to uh, over um, a number of years is the founding of Justice is Global as a project at People's Action, and um, Doing this at People's Action is important. Being part of a national organization um, obviously gives you a lot more opportunities to do international work um, compared to just operating locally. Um, And also um, being able to work with the member organizations in People's Action and and sort of uh, bring some of this global perspective and political education um, into into, uh, groups that are organizing in different communities across the country. is also like a huge asset. Yeah, so that's that was sort of um, how Justice is Global uh, came to be. The, the ambition is, um, uh, you know, a, a long-term mission to transform the economy at the global level, uh, to create a, create a more uh, equitable and uh, sustainable global economy. Right now, though, um, the since the beginning of the pandemic, um, yeah. the focus has, has really been on a couple things. One is um, how to build an alternative to this like rapidly escalating U.S.-China conflict, and um, and also uh, in connection with that, we've got a campaign f- uh, to uh, a campaign for global cooperation uh, to end the pandemic um, uh, that um, is is targeting the federal government. You know, part of the idea there is that we do need global cooperation to actually solve this thing. Um, but also the more we can do to lift up the importance of global cooperation, um, the better equipped we're going to be to like use that as, as a positive vision to counter, um, this like increasingly, um, uh, um, just toxic and and violent nationalism, particularly towards China. Yeah. Yeah. So before COVID, I think one of the issues you were kind of most focused on was this idea that in the U.S. It's very, it became very fashionable to say something like the United States lost all of its jobs and the American workers doing poorly because of Chinese workers in, in competition. And you wanted to say, like, we don't have to choose between the two. Maybe, in fact, we could talk about, you know, thinking about workforces, uh, labor across borders rather than kind of dividing them up by borders. Um, now, with COVID this last year, it seems like what, what, is, what was your main concern you know, I know you talked about like kind of averting a new Cold War and xenophobia. What was like, how bad do you think it was going to get, let's say, you know, around April and May when China virus and Wuhan virus is kind of flying around? And looking back, what what do you think has actually happened? Back in, I guess, this is back in like early March um, or even, even in February, 
I wasn't sure how bad the pandemic was going to be, um, like back in February, early March. But um, I was tracking the rhetoric on the right. Um, I had become an avid viewer of the Tucker Carlson right, show, yeah. um, which is like the top, the top ranked news show in the country. Well, <laughs> news, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it, it was just clear that um, to the extent that uh, the pandemic was going to become uh, a, a central political issue for the country, um, they were gonna, th their response was going to be to uh, scapegoat China and um, they, they were already, from right away, um, moving this narrative that anything bad that happens to the U.S. because of this virus, that is a thing that China has done to us. So, like, every person who dies from the pandemic, um, that is someone that China has killed, right? That was, that was the narrative that they started moving, like, right away. Seeing that, I anticipated that um, to the extent that the pandemic does become like really bad in the US and it's gotten way worse than I ever imagined. Um, uh, the, the China bashing rhetoric would also get, you know, um, uh, proportionately awful. Um, and I think one big thing that disrupted that was like not anything that I did, but it was the, the Black Lives Matter uprising. Um, you know, in April, as of April, uh, the Trump campaign, the White House, uh, the entire GOP had um, organized itself around um, a, a set of talking points uh, that were all about China bashing. And that was going to be their main messaging strategy, strategy yeah. both to defend this themselves around criticism about how badly Trump had mismanaged the, the pandemic, but also to use it into um, uh, a line of attack against the Democrats by like painting the Democrats as um, yeah. having caved to China or being in league with the CCP or whatever. Yeah, but when Black Lives Matter um, hit following the murder of George Floyd, end of May, um, that whole messaging strategy just like went right out the window. Like this talk around China on Fox News was like it disappeared, hmm. and um, and and they were really I think they really struggled to to regain their footing. Um, it's like racial justice and particularly the issue of anti-black racism is like a real, it's, it's a real, like I would say it's a real vulnerability for, for the right. Um, and it threw their whole messaging strategy off and um, it took them a while, I think to, they've come back yeah. to it now, but it really yeah. disrupted that. Yeah, like Tammy's mentioned, she's based in Montana. She's seen a lot of anti-China as even from the Democrat uh, candidate mm -hmm. Bullock is his. He was one of the candidates um, in, in the primary. Also, I've seen it from GOP candidates, um, not from any Democrats here. Biden did run that one ad, but I guess you know that was like the one. Uh, I mean, Brooke, from your perspective, do you feel like it is um, a thing where the GOP has not been has kind of been what's the word? kind of defanged, like they haven't been able to run on it? Or do you feel like it's just like not clicking with, with voters? Or do you feel like there's a, there is a danger that um, the, the GOP can make gains by running on China, anti-China issues? I mean, I, I tend to agree with Toby that it has been much less heightened since April, March, um, in part because I spent a lot of time around Toby at that point in my life in particular. Um, it was quite baffling that Tucker Carlson was referencing the China virus almost every single night, right? There were, it was a series of different talk pieces that he was putting out there. Um, and yes, I think like you still hear Trump every now and then reference the China virus. I do think it's still in the rhetoric of the GOP. 
Um, but it feels much less pervasive. And, you know, I would agree I haven't seen much of it from the Biden campaign, if at all, since that one ad. I mean, and Toby, you pointed me to an article in Politico where they actually quote you as saying you and maybe other, probably a lot of groups, right, kind of approached the Biden campaign about, hey, knock it off with the China bashing. Um, what, what was, I don't know if you can, you know, reveal whatever, but like, what was their reaction? Like, did, were they like, oh, yeah, like, we'll knock it off? Or do they seem completely surprised that this was actually like a, a thing that people were mad about? Well, yeah, what's in what's in the public record? So I think it's this is also in the political story um, that they were taken aback, like the campaign was taken aback, that they would get attacked this way. And, uh, they because, did, like, why, why, why were they taken up? Like, do they not have any Asian people on staff? Like, what's uh, going well, on? Uh, I think there's a couple things going on there. One is, like, the Biden campaign is our last line of defense against Trump, right? So why would you attack that? I think that's one place where they come from. I think another place, though, also is, um, um, you know, hey, we're the model minority. Uh, we're not going to put up a fight for our stuff, right? I think that's sort of, I think there is some, um, I think that idea still has currency among the political establishment. So you've been running, you've, you have a document on the Justice Global website called Averting a New Cold War where you run um, a deep canvassing campaign, which Burke also mentioned earlier. Do you want to tell us a little bit about sort of what you were doing and what you discovered? And I mean, are you hopeful with, with the results from this from this uh, I don't know, experiment or campaign or project, whatever you want to call it? Yeah, so we uh, organized a group of uh, about a dozen volunteers and uh, called into uh, the swing states of Michigan and Pennsylvania uh, over a series of uh, six weeks in the summer and uh, talked to uh, voters there. Uh, main, we, we mainly targeted Democratic and independent voters, although we also got some uh, Republicans kind of by accident, um, and talked to them about uh, the pandemic, uh, their feelings about the pandemic, and also um, what they feel about China. Uh, you know, we surfaced a lot of the anti-China sem- sentiment that we knew that was out there just based on polling um, and uh, tested and developed some messaging uh, that pushed uh, U.S.-China cooperation, so international cooperation, as an alternative to uh, anti-China scapegoating um, and took different approaches uh, in terms of like highlighting um, concretely like how that would help like if you the US and China were cooperating around a vaccine like how that would um, make us safer more quickly um, and also sharing um, uh, stories of you know like uh, folks in the Chinese diaspora organizing drives to get masks from China into local hospitals and that sort of thing um, and overall I the 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 results and the experience um, was really heartening. I would say that what we found was that the anti-China sentiment is like very broad, but it's it's shallow. Um, people haven't reflected very deeply about China and and the relationship, the U.S.-China relationship. They hear a couple things on on the news, and so you know, at first they might say an anti-China thing. But um, it doesn't take that much of like a real conversation to start to get some counter narratives um, in their minds. Um, so what do they think they've heard and what do you say to kind of change their mind? I think it is just really basic like 
you hear the president say China virus um, a few times and you get that association. And then sometimes that's just the level that it's at. And then you find that people are actually quite open to 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 changing their mind. Like, what do you what do you what do you kind of do to kind of, like what are the, what would the first step be to sort of change someone's mind? Um, so uh, so one one way this might one way this conversation might work is uh, you just connect with the person around what it's like to to live under the pandemic, how it's impacted them personally, uh, or impacted their their family or their communities, um, and um, just get clear on like the stakes of this thing. Um, and then, uh, talk about, um, how, uh, international cooperation is like actually really important to getting solutions and that, um, you know, we can, we can, uh, save people's lives, uh, here in the U S and around the world and get the economy back on track more quickly, uh, by working together across borders and that there are already people doing that. Um, yeah. and, and it should be the job of our political leaders to facilitate that kind of cooperation inst- instead of getting in the way. And, um, unfortunately what we have right now is, uh, leadership in the federal government that is doing everything they can to undermine, uh, any effort at cooperation. Yeah. But then do you ever get the sense, do you ever kind of wonder or kind of self reflect and think, well, we do see a lot of bad things, like unquestionably bad things that the Chinese government does, Obviously, Xinjiang, but also Hong Kong are just like, you know, like it's not necessarily government you want to um, support uncritically. Right. So do you ever, how would you like, you know, if like, let's say you call me and I say that, how, how would you respond to um, that sort of more sophisticated argument about kind of differentiating between like the Chinese government versus the Chinese people and people saying you don't have to be racist to oppose the Chinese government, let's say. I'm just, you know, it, it just occurred to me, <clears throat> I'm not sure I, we encountered any of that during this phone banking project. Um, like, I think, I think those are important arguments to address. I'm just wanting, yeah, this just occurred to me. I'm not sure that that ever came up, like the human rights arguments about why we should be tough on China or whatever. Yeah. Um, oh, so those are, so, okay, interesting. Yeah, so I'm not sure. So, um, yeah, I had not thought about this, but um, I'd be curious to dig deeper into how widespread that actually is as a rationale for anti-China sentiment. Yeah. I think um, maybe just on Reddit. I don't know if anyone in real life actually thinks this. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely if, if you know, um, people who are interested in politics, who I guess are the sorts of people that uh, those of us here spend a lot of time talking to, are more likely to have that um, at, you know, um, as, as one of their top things to yeah. talk about when it comes to yeah. China. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's not true for the broader population. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's uh, like I definitely feel the force of um, uh, that argument, and um, uh, uh, and I think it's important for us as folks on the left not to try to make excuses for uh, the Chinese government um, and its horrific uh, human rights abuses and the crackdown on Hong Kong and and then also like the threats against Taiwan. Um, but uh, I think the, the big thing I want to say here is, um, do we really think that uh, a, a deteriorating U.S.-China relationship and increased aggression from the U.S. government against China is going to end up in any sorts of improvements um, in any of these fronts? And I think the answer is no. Yeah. Brooke, from your perspective, being in you know the Bernie campaign twice and just organizing with progressive groups the last few years, do you feel like 
there has been an internal conversation about kind of more progressive messaging or internationalist messaging um, and trying to connect, uh, you know, American issues to the rest of the world are also just, you know, as I mentioned before, not trying to like pit, let's say, the U.S. worker versus the Chinese worker or the sort of the U.S. middle class versus how people are doing um, in the rest of the world. You know, kind of kind of having criticism of globalization that is not just about being like xenophobic, let's say. You know, in, in recent years, much more so, in part because of the work that Toby has been spearheading, in my opinion, I do think that one of the places I've seen the left move most on this, at least in terms of narrative, is with climate change. I do think a lot of progressive leaders are starting to really talk about global migration as a result of climate change um, in a way that does address the fact that we need to come up with global solutions for the problems that people are facing. So that's been where I've heard it the most. And then I do think, yes, like in recent years, the work that Justice is Global has done um, has really called the question of like, what do we benefit as a movement from actually heightening US-China aggression? And I think like one of the lessons that I have seen people understand more and more these days is that it is actually in both uh, the Chinese government and Trump's benefit um, to try to scapegoat each other, right? It is not something that is meant to benefit people in either of these countries. Um, and I think like that's something that more and more people are coming to understand in the left and actually think about through a critical lens. Yeah. Do you feel like you're, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to put you on the spot to speak for all young people, but do you feel like, <laughs> you know, in your education or just kind of your conversations with your friends, do you feel like there is... Um, uh, more more sort of awareness of internationalist or maybe the need for more internationalist thinking because one thing we've talked about in the show is we feel like you know talking to some older leftists they would say like in the 60s and 70s during the cold war they were they were always thinking about like every every country on the in the world was like a potentially you know like capitalist or socialist country and you had to think about the world that way and then like my generation toby and my generation were from the 90s and like there is no more there's no more history, everything's capitalist and it's great and we can just kind of focus on ourselves. Now I think, you know, the from what I understand, you know, OA crisis, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, there is a sense of like things are kind of up for grabs and maybe we in the United States should be unafraid to look around and see like what are different ways of organizing society or the government and things like that. Do you feel like that's kind of um, characteristic of your generation? I hope so. <laughs> It's my short answer to that. I, I mean, yes, I do think so. Um, and I actually think I'm so I'm actually on the cusp of millennials and Gen Z, right? There is a yet another generation of organizers that are even younger than me that have blossomed. And it's interesting because I do think that, you know, I, I see my brother, he, he went through high school and everyone was talking about Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all and you know, the ways in which the U.S. has promoted war in other countries in a way that actually wasn't even true for me when I was in high school. You know, I think like I mentioned, my childhood was pretty apolitical. And I don't know if it's because of the the Internet. I'm not too Twitter savvy myself. So <laughs> might be that might be a piece of it. But I do think like more and more so I just feel like young people who are entering the political arena um, have already been exposed to all of these things in conversation with friends. It's a part of people's daily lives these days. Um, as we kind of head into the election, I know we obviously don't want to like jinx anything and get blamed for losing the election, but what are you all thinking about in terms of like what's the most important thing um, to look for in terms of the left or progressive politics 
But what are, what are y'all thinking about going into the election? Let's just say that. Like, obviously the results, but, um, you know, what else are you looking for? I really, really believe that the next big fight is going to be COVID relief and recovery. It's it's relevant to everyone. It's also something, I mean, God knows what COVID relief we would win under a Trump presidency, but he has said he wants to pass something. Um and clearly under a Biden administration too, we should be pushing very hard for the most progressive iteration of COVID relief out there. And I do think it's just the most clear short-term win that we could accomplish as a movement that would move the needle on all of our issue campaigns that we've been fighting for for many years now. Like that is that is the thing that I think will determine whether or not we lay the foundation to win things like a Holmes Guarantee, Free College, Green New Deal. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's going to be the big fight. Um, and I think, um, um, you know, looking past that is, uh, I think climate's going to have to be, uh, something that we need to pivot to quickly. And although like that can actually show up within the relief and recovery package. So part of what we're going to need is, um, economic, an economic recovery package, uh, and, um, um, Ideally, I mean, we are going to need some sort of job creation um, uh, plan to um, get out of what is like a severe unemployment crisis. Like, this is something that boggles my mind. It's the when you look at the figures, they're they're so bad, and I don't see it like currently reflected in politics right now. I think that's going to come to a head. Um, I think we could, um, uh, yeah. I think I think the um, I don't know how it's going to play out, but this this unemployment crisis is going to is going to break into politics in a much more serious way at, at some point before too long. Um, anyway, so uh, if if we're moving some sort of job creation plan um, in order to uh, deal with that, then um, I think like the Green New Deal model of like green job creation is the way to go. Um, so the, the climate issue could could show up um, um, even within like the COVID relief and and, and recovery um fight and um and that's something that uh other folks in people's action have been working on as well with a with a bunch of other allies what's the what's the best way for us you know who are progressive and left but also operate in a world where you know it's president biden and vice president harris to actually get them to listen like is there is it other than just like wait every two years for another election is there anything else that we can do i mean the the most important thing to start is if you if you have it, um, join an organization. Um, um, you know, it, it would warm my heart if it's if it's one of ours. But <laughs> there are other good ones out there. Not a, uh, not a right wing organization, though. Not a right wing. Yes, a movement organization. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think there's just a lot of different, um, a lot of different ways to uh, sort of contribute to um, uh, progressive political pressure. Um, on, on the Democratic Party establishment. Yeah, I would say, going back to what Toby was speaking to earlier about the story that's going to be told after the election, that piece is really key in my mind because there is going to be a big push, probably from Biden and Harris themselves, right, to define the story of this election as, look, we were right. You need to elect moderates. That's how you beat Trump. And our ability to really contest that, no, it's a progressive vision around multiracial democracy that will mobilize this country, 
um, that's going to be key. And, you know, there's a lot of ways in which you do that and a lot of ways in which we have to struggle to do that, including being able to actually put meaningful pressure on not just, you know, the, the president and the vice president, but also senators. Like, what would it look like for us to actually be able to win COVID relief and recovery and flex our power through that fight in a way that would indirectly also put pressure on Biden and Harris? Um, how are we really essentially continuing the fight for uh, racial justice and making sure that people are still hitting the streets and mobilizing around, you know, how everyone is touched by the the multiple crises that are happening in our country? Um, I do think the the first hundred days, you know, are talked about a lot. It's going to be really, really critical that we're able to demonstrate um, the level of power that was built this cycle, not just by Biden and Kamala as, you know, figureheads, but actually by the movement and by the agenda that we're we're organizing people around. So when you say story, it's not necessarily like publishing a better story on some left wing website. It's about like winning or changing the direction of legislation through pressuring center Senate votes, let's say, or House House votes um, in that first couple months. Is that is that what you kind of what you mean by that? Yes. Yeah. When I think about the story that we're telling, I think it's both. It's like, yes, we've got to actually literally publish the story of what we did, right? And make sure that it is out there, that people understand the massive, massive operation that went into electing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but also down ballot candidates that actually align with our movement values, right? Um, Like we have to make sure that we are putting that in writing and that people are seeing it and understanding it. But we also have to make sure there's real action to continue that story and that, you know, people are seeing the level of organizing that's happening across the country when they look out their window. So the story would include basically everything over the summer with the sort of more notable victories we just kind of mentioned, right? And But also you're, you're saying like perhaps invisible efforts in terms of trying to get the swing states to go to Biden. And we don't really have a reason. You know, there's the assumption that just because everyone hates Trump, but like why is Arizona, why is Texas, why are these states suddenly kind of leaning um, Biden, there's actually, you're saying like an unwritten story or an invisible story about progressive organization. Absolutely. And I think, you know, no one organization can take credit alone for flipping a swing state. There's an incredible number of forces that go into impacting the electorate. But I do think that there's just a massive amount of organizing that is happening because I think movement organizations on the left have built a lot of infrastructure that did not exist 10 years ago. Um And that definitely is having an impact because the way that these organizations, many of which I should say are People's Action member organizations as well, um, the way that they organize is a lot deeper than just a campaign, right? It's about mobilizing leaders, not just activists. It's about finding people who have their own natural relationships in their communities. It's about building political power and actually having people you know, elected at the down ballot level who support your agenda and are helping you earn votes, et cetera. And I think that is a story that too often gets erased, especially when all of the headlines are about like what Joe Biden and Trump did yesterday and what kind of planes they were in, et cetera. Um, And we've got to find a way to tell that story. Like it's on us to figure out how to do that because it's not just going to be in CNN tomorrow, you know, Uh, but I do think it's key. So it it could include, you know, writing like telling the story in like left-wing publications so that it exists somewhere, but also like how do we how can we get that as much as possible into uh, the more mainstream uh, public conversation? Um, it's also going to be, um, I don't know, like I, I feel like there's, there's going to be something for everyone to do. Like um, it's going to take uh, a lot of research and probably math and stats to like um, pick apart 
the election results and 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 like uh, uh, identify the evidence that we need in order to make the case that no, it's not the conservative um, anti-Trump Republicans in the suburbs. Like that is like um, yeah, we need we need to be able to contest all of this stuff. Right. It wasn't the Lincoln Project that wanted all. That's right. Project. That's right. Yes. Yes. It's probably helpful to give some context to that. I mentioned we're running this deep canvas program to um, help elect Biden despite not endorsing him. And the results that we've seen have been pretty phenomenal when you juxtapose them with a traditional campaign. Uh, we, we ran an experiment in the battleground states to actually test how effective we'd be at moving voters. And it was like 8.5 of independent women, 4.9% of women, and 3.1% of the electorate overall. Um, we were able to successfully move, which might s sound like small numbers, but when you look at traditional electoral campaigns, you know, we're talking about being over a hundred times more effective than traditional campaigning methods. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Can you clarify then for, cause I, I'm not even sure I understand what is the difference between traditional versus deep canvassing? Yes. Great question. So traditional canvassing, you give volunteers a script, right? You're like, here is point A, point B, point C. Your job is to memorize this and regurgitate it with voters so that you can spread the good word around what this candidate stands for. Whereas with deep canvas conversations, we actually train people on soft skills a lot more. So we train them how to ask open-ended questions, like how to share a story from a place of vulnerability, um, how to engage with conflict in a way that's not combative, but instead pulls out dissonance in what voters are saying. So I hear you say that your dad was an immigrant and you really value that experience and how it's shaped you, but also that you're nervous about immigrants taking your job. Um, that sounds like some conflict. Like, how are you feeling about that, et cetera? Um, so we really train people on how to engage with voters. Um, and then when they give the pitch, it's about building a government that cares for all of us, whether we're white, black, brown, um, and really sharing our worldview with voters after we've had that conversation that engages them from more of a place of vulnerability and listening. And you think that, and you, have you all been doing that in like just the swing states mostly or all 50 states or? Our program has been very focused on battleground states. I should say this is a tactic that, you know, has existed uh, primarily through issue campaigns before this presidential cycle. This is the first time we're applying it to electoral organizing. Um, and was used, for example, in Minnesota on the fight um, to win gay marriage um, as a way to move voters' perspective on a specific issue. Um, and this time, you know, people's action thought about how could we apply this to um, getting people to vote against Trump in all of the battleground states in the country? Like, what would it look like to actually model a universe of conflicted voters that we thought could be persuaded and engage them with this tactic that's usually used for issue campaigns? All right, so I think we're good. I mean, is there, is there anything else that we you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Yeah, I think I want to come back to the right-wing anti-China talking point. So, you know, on the one hand, we talked about how it's become less of an issue than we might have feared um, as we get closer to the election. Um, I think the flip side of that, though, is um, it, it really has taken off within the hardcore GOP base. So the Republican base... Um, has gotten the message. Um, yeah. And, you know, there were surveys showing that uh, for Republican voters, uh, they identify China as the top threat to the United States. Um, so it's not true of Democrats, it's not true of independents, but Republicans have gotten the message. So because the message hasn't caught on outside of the existing GOP base, that's why it's not, 
as powerful as a tool as we might have feared in the election. However, uh, it's not it's not going away. Um, and what we're seeing on on the right is the emergence of um, of China is 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 a really central vision of a really central villain for them, like on all on all issues. So there's there's any problem you can identify, um, they're going to somehow find a way to blame that on China. They've done that with with like Black Lives Matter. They've they've found ways to say that actually this is. Um, yeah. This is part of a, a CCP plot to undermine the country and, and weaken the United States so that they can take over the world um, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think like that's going to be a, a long term uh, 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 problem that we need to face uh, as we continue to struggle against the right. Like the right's not going away, even if, if Trump wins. Um, they're going to radicalize in some ways, actually, if, if Trump wins. Um, and this anti-China politics is going to continue to be a part of that. And we're going to have to continue to be vigilant uh, around uh, uh, sort of centrist Democrats feeling the need to sort of compete with Republicans over the anti-China messaging um, like we did earlier this year um, with Biden. Even if Trump loses, you think that'll survive? That's that's there for the next generation of oh, GOP? Yeah, yeah. This is going to be... Um, if we get over this within a decade, I'll be very pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. China's not going anywhere. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, I think we're good. So that's awesome. Thanks.